This episode of Between the Covers is brought to you in part by Vancouver Manuscript Intensive, a literary mentoring program that pairs emerging and established authors with mentors in their genre. Directed by award-winning writers Ellie Qualgie Gardner and Rachel Rose in Vancouver, BC, the program is open to writers around the world who seek sustained mentorship for their works in progress. Writers can join the six-month program that includes interaction with other mentors and students and participation in a public reading, or they can pursue solo guidance for more directed and short-term support all year long. This year, a fellowship for a writer of exceptional promise who has faced significant barriers to fulfilling that promise is offered for the second time. The application deadline for the six-month program beginning January 2022, is November 9th. Please visit VancouverManuscriptIntensive.com for more information about pairing with a mentor to hone your project. Today's episode is also brought to you by Miriam Chancy's What Storm, What Thunder, a novel Angie Cruz calls a gorgeous and compulsively readable page-turner in the most haunting and stunning prose. Says Edwidge Danticat, lending her voice to 10 survivors whose lives were indelibly altered by the January 12, 2010 earthquake in Haiti, Miriam Chancy's sublime choral novel not only describes what it was like for her characters before, during, and after that heartrending day, she also powerfully guides us toward further reflection and healing. What Storm, What Thunder is out on October 5th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I suspect many of you will recognize the name, and if not the name, likely the voice of today's guest, Padre Gotuma, someone who in our collective brainstorm of Between the Covers listener supporters of the people we most would love to see come on the show in the future, is frequently named. Padraig and I have been talking back and forth for a long time now during the pandemic about when made most sense for both of us to talk, and I'm excited to finally be able to share this with you. In most ways, the sound quality of today's conversation is significantly better than most other episodes which is not surprising, given that I'm talking to a fellow podcaster who was using his own external microphone in his home in Ireland. But there are three or four times during the conversation where suddenly, and thankfully briefly, Padraig's speech speeds up very fast. That isn't the result of him suddenly knocking back a triple espresso. Rather, it is something to do with the invisible celestial intertubes between Ireland and Oregon, the signal between our respective mossy green lands getting first a bit stuck and then a bit excited all at once. Before we begin today's conversation with our third Irish writer of the year on Between the Covers, following Darren Negrifa and Anna Cana Schofield, I did want to mention Padraig's contribution to the bonus audio archive. 
For the bonus audio, he reads some poems that have been generated out of a collaboration he's doing with some Scottish writers. He reads poems in both English and Irish for us. And this joins bonus audio from Diren Nagrifa, who read poems by other contemporary poets that she loves, by Teju Cole reading John Berger, Etel Adnan, and new work written by him, by Phil Metris reading some of his translations from Russian, Alice Oswald reading a new ballad for Anne Carson, as well as from the Book of Job, and much more. A little over 3% of listeners to Between the Covers are supporters of Between the Covers. The goal is to get this to between 4 and 5% by the end of the year. These writers contributing to the bonus audio, the donation of rare collectibles from Nikki Finney, Ursula K. Le Guin, and others, and many other things are only a small sampling of the possible benefits of becoming a listener supporter and helping shape the future of the show. You can find out more about becoming a listener supporter and the various things available to entice you to become a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a a catalyst for dialogue and and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, theologian, storyteller, conflict mediator, podcast host, and public speaker, Padraig Otuma. Otuma has a Bachelor of Arts in Divinity from the Pontifical College of Maynooth, a Master's in Theology from Queen's University, Belfast, and is currently pursuing a doctorate in theology through creative practice at the University of Glasgow. Perhaps best known in the United States as the staff poet and theologian at the On Being Project, helmed by Krista Tippett, and as host of Poetry Unbound, a podcast produced by On Being Studios, that for many people is a -a twice-a-week poetry ritual, where for a quarter hour, Otuma guides us through an immersive reading of a poem written by some of our greatest poets today, from Ocean Vong to Lely Long Soldier to Ilya Kaminsky. Otuma himself is the author of the poetry collection Readings from the Books of Exile, which was longlisted for the 2013 Polari Prize, awarded annually for a first book which explores the LGBTQ experience, as well as the poetry collection Sorry for Your Troubles, both out from Canterbury Press. 
From 2014 to 2019, Otuma was the leader of the Corimila community, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organization, which works with over 10,000 people a year. And Otuma has worked with many other mediation organizations, including Cooperation Ireland, Mediation Northern Ireland, and Place for Hope. He's one of the founders of the Spirituality of Conflict Project, which reads the gospel texts through the lens of conflict and conflict through the lens of the gospel texts. And he's the author of Daily Prayer with Corimila Community, a book of daily Bible readings accompanied by prayer poems written by Otuma himself. He's also the co-founder of 10x9, a Belfast storytelling event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their lives, an event that has since spread to other cities internationally. Padre Gotuma is here today to talk about his two latest books, both out this year. The first, co-authored with Glenn Jordan, is Borders and Belonging, The Book of Ruth, A Story for Our Times, out from Canterbury Press, a book that has been used by over 6,000 people as part of Cory Mila's Public Theology Initiative, enabling people with opposing views and deep social and political grievances and disagreements to come together and be heard. And the second is the North American release of his memoir from Broadleaf Books entitled In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World. Mary McAvoy for the Irish Independent says, The title of Otuma's latest book, In the Shelter, suggests that it might be another cozy book about self-improvement and the attainment of happiness. While it definitely embraces those two, it is not a cozy read. It is complicated and confronting. It is challenging, erudite, poetic, but it is rewarding and will live long in the mind. A book to be kept at one's bedside for those dark nights of the soul when sleep evades. For though it may not be cozy, it offers us ways of accepting life as it is, of standing still in the moment, and it offers the courage needed not to run from fear. Krista Tippett adds, to say that In the Shelter is one of the most beautiful and quietly necessary books of our young century is a sweeping assertion, but I will make it. What astonishes and teaches most profoundly is the capacity Otuma develops to claim his inheritance, his right to be, his gift to offer, in places that have not wanted him. Not to define his country, his neighbors, or his church because of how they have defined and sought to diminish him. He pursues what is life-giving in all of those places and shows us the presence and practice that requires. This is an exquisite work of spiritual autobiography. Welcome to Between the Covers, Padre Gatuma. Thanks, David. It's nice to be with you. So when we were corresponding back and forth by email over the last year, you imagined that lots of writers have anxiety about being typecast. Yeah. And that you yourself worry about the idea of being labeled as a quote-unquote religious writer. And I'd love to start here, both because I would love this conversation to not participate in typecasting (laughs) you, but also because I'm, I'm curious about the story behind this, particularly given that, with the notable exception of the Poetry Unbound podcast, which is possibly your most high-profile position internationally, 
everything else from your poetry collections, your daily prayer book, your memoir, your bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees are all one to the next engaged deeply with religion and religious texts. So complicate the picture for us, Padre. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for that lovely question. Um, I suppose I have an anxiety about the idea of a religious artist having an agenda. And it is the idea that an artist who is making art for some kind of recruiting purpose or some kind of assertive purpose that, that draws strict delineations between people on one side of a border and people on the other side of a border. And that, to my mind, is part of the hallmark of violence that the church hasn't begun. I think it's part of the human condition, but certainly the church and more broadly, the Christian churches, I should say, and then more broadly, religions have have been extraordinary at creating those kind of sub delineations. So when I hear and I have heard myself sometimes introduced as a religious poet or as a Christian poet, I find those descriptors really um, concerning because I have no interest in recruitment. Mm. I do have an interest in living a life in conversation with a body of literature and growing up in the Irish Catholicism that I did and having some of the curiosities about the devil that I did, I suppose. I have spent many years studying those literatures of religion and I want to pay as much artistic attention to them as I can, but it's literary attention. Um, it is it is less and less important to me really as to whether there is a God. What is really important to me is the recognition that literature for thousands of years has wondered if there is. Mm. And it's that wondering, that curiosity that interests me and that is a a spiritual enterprise, of course, but it's also secular. And it is secular in the sense of the true meaning of that word, siècle from French in terms of to be of the century you're of. And I am absolutely of the century I am in terms of the turn in religious sensibility in Ireland, the politics of Ireland, the politics of queer life in Ireland. All of those things for me are secular enterprises. And so I suppose that's part of the anxiety I have sometimes when it comes to questions to do with um, being affiliated, especially as an artist, with with anything that might be perceived as a religious agenda. Well, one of the things I enjoy about each time I listen to you talk, similar to when I listen to Natalie Diaz give readings also, is that you both will take words that are invested with a lot of history and meaning and... and um, make them surprising to us again. So for instance, here, you just did that with secular. And I, and um, for instance, when you were on the Messy Jesus podcast, you, you were having this great conversation where all of these words that you wouldn't think you would bring up and then trouble, like Christian, minister, disciple, and light, you sort of unpacked the reasons why they were um, problematic or, or com more complicated and not immediately like, embraced without ambivalence and here you're elevating secular as yeah. a um, as a counterbalance to that yeah i mean i love theology as you noted <laughs> possibly to my own detriment i have spent years studying theology and i think i will continue to um uh, and theology for me is a set of questions uh rather than 
mean, I suppose it has propositions, but I am so anxious about the theology being a recruitment technique or a recruitment tactic. Like a silly story about one of the things that causes me a really real worry is years ago I went along to this event and there was a man speaking at it. And it, it was a, an experimental event in Belfast, in a city that has known so much murder because of these labels about what religion and politics and territory and colonization mean. And so there was a Protestant who converted to Catholicism and he was giving a defense, you know, around a table. It was called the Last Supper. The kind of pretense was, you know, would we crucify him at the end? Of course, he was never going to be crucified. But that was the kind of, it was an artistic and secular engagement with serious religious ideas. And I was chatting to him at the start and he heard my accent and said, oh God, you're not from Belfast. And I told him, and it turned out that he was part of a prayer group that my parents were part of. And he asked me what I was doing. And I told him a few things and I was doing my undergrad at the time a pontifical undergrad and he heard those few things and he said oh you and I will agree on practically everything and I was almost ill <laughs> because mm. he was defining a Catholicism that was much more conservative than many of the Catholics I knew he had the zeal of a convert and I was furious I hated the assumption of that and some of my fury came out in questions and at the end he looked at me and he said keep on the journey, you might get there. And I thought this is exactly why I am so uninterested in religious belonging and why religious belonging is so toxic because it says shit like that. It does that to people. And I fully understand why people are nervous about any artist who uses religion as part of their moniker, because I think for good reason, for evidenced reason, people have concern that that's going to be subtly in the ether. When you've talked in other places about how maybe your your personality wise you're predisposed to wanting to belong that you grew know, up you grew up wanting to be part <laughs> of the community but as a as a gay theologian you have a fraught past with the church you've been subjected to multiple public exorcisms you've been sent to reparative therapy where you were supposed to learn to lust after women and I could easily imagine another person, or perhaps most other people, subjected to what you were subjected to, rejecting the community, the church, and the religion wholesale. And, and I, I never get the sense that you ever suggest that your path is the right path for anyone but yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but I want... Uh, I, I, I'm not even sure it is the right path for me. But anyway, <laughs> that's fair. Thanks for your generosity. <laughs> but um, I do want to stay with it a little bit because I think about, again, Natalie Diaz, she gave a talk um, about religion, herself being a queer and indigenous poet, about still attending church and sitting in the back. And even when the sermons were homophobic, you know, sometimes even laughing at them, um, and she doesn't even mention in this talk that also, obviously, the the principal role the church played aligned with state power and the erasure of, of indigenous languages, the removal of children from their families and, and the families from the land. Or I think of another recent guest, um, Abdullah Taya, who insists, despite his faith refusing him, that he is both Muslim and gay. And even though he was disowned 
for this and lives in France, not Morocco. His insistence of both sides of what other people consider a, con a contradiction has created a space in Morocco, a growing space for gay Moroccans on their own terms. And the language in Morocco in relation to homosexuality is changing in the broader culture. And um, I bring this up because I wonder about the relationship to language for writers who insist upon both irreconcilable aspects of identity, who don't refuse, as Krista Tippett talks about in the blurb that I read, who don't refuse what is refused them. And perhaps in the refusal to refuse, maybe in the best cases, change the refusers. I have a lot to say about that, but, but, but one of the things that troubles me is is the idea of changing people's minds. So much about what I know of certain forms of the Christianities of the world is a Christianity that is mission-driven, <clears throat> and mission-driven in the sense of saying, I met this person, they believed that, this, and now they believe that. And I find that um, reduction of human encounter to be really diminishing. And it's not reciprocal either, and there's no risk in it. In fact, it's an exercise in control and perhaps manipulation. So one of the things that's troubling to me as a person who is hoping that <laughs> uh, the Catholicisms, for instance, that have been so brutal towards so many LGBT people would change their minds is what's my relationship with hoping to change other people's minds, given that I've given that I I experienced so much pain through that myself. Um, so I suppose within the context of that, I see it as a, an opportunity for some kind of expression of language that opens up conversations that religion might, might foreclose. Ways within which the imagination is, plays a role ways within which there is the possibility of thinking of human dignity, of elevating reason, and of, of being able to name zero-sum arguments where zero-sum arguments are set up. And much and all as the Catholic tradition has a deep intellectual tradition when it comes to speaking about women and LGBTQ people. I do think the Catholic Church is shorthand about what natural law is really does diminish the human experience and really goes against the intellectual tradition that it says it relies on. And I suppose for me, I'm interested in being good enough at language to be able to have surprising conversations. And this isn't just where I hope other people are surprised and they change their mind. I, I have to be open to surprise in the context of that too. I have to be willing to recognize that if I want to have intimate conversations of deep disagreement with people, that I have to believe enough in human dignity to think that the exchange can be mutually beneficial and that I will come away not seeking further exorcisms or reparative therapy. That's uninteresting and, you know, violent. But I will come away realizing, my God, I'm still part of that addictive understanding of putting people in boxes and I have had to undo a few boxes of my own. And that's one of the things that keeps me interested in 
spaces like this because they are spaces where you can have these conversations and people have a text and they're in profound engagement with that text and you're in you're having hermeneutical literary arguments in a way where you're saying yes but the greek here or the hebrew here and you're talking and you're understanding and you're bringing that into contemporary engagement and you're looking at how the text critiques the text and that is a profoundly poetic exercise and it motivates me so much and it makes me think that my hypothetical children i don't have and i won't have any but it makes me think that i would have been disposed to have brought children up in the catholic church also because i think if only for having a good reason for leaving it it's worthwhile having been part of it wow that's really it's the well. argument that interests me yeah i love that i i want to stay with this um the risk of encounter and of mm. both people being changed but also you know this question which i've heard i'm sure you've heard over and over again um what do what does poetry do or what does storytelling do or what doesn't it do so i'm thinking of like again i'm going to bring up natalie diaz but um she talks about how when she was uh, when she's out in the world of poetry that she has a lot of currency there's a lot of demand for her and her poetry in the world but when she goes home to navajo nation and she says she's a poet she doesn't have the same currency the question there is always well what do your poems do what mm. is the effect off of the page and she's taken that to heart questioning how to bring the poetry into the world within the body in engagement with the land and the community and in in my last um one of my last conversations with kava akbar we also talk about what a revolutionary poetics would look like and how to know when a poem is doing work and when it is only fooling you that it has making you feel good for feeling bad for a moment, but not really challenging anything. So again, yeah. avoiding this sort of risk of, um, of, of potentially having to abandon something you thought was true for yourself. And he spoke about poets out in the world, what poems can and can't do, and, and brought up poet, poets like June Jordan and Gwendolyn Brooks and Farouk Farakzad, and what they did outside of their poetry that probably informed their poetry. And, and when I think of your work in the world and just how much you do in the realm of encounter with the other, the stranger and the opponent, it is clear just how much that work affects your writing and how much your writing feels an extension of that work. Like I don't ask myself that question <laughs> with your writing. And I mean that as a, as a compliment, and I I I want to I want to talk about the role of poetry and of story both in this realm, but I wanted to start with story, with you both the good and the bad, of storytelling, and particularly maybe we can start with the book you did with Glenn Jordan, Borders and Belonging, which is interesting because you choose the Book of Ruth as a story through which Irish and English people will engage with each other, and that is ingenious to me. I mean, it's, it particularly seems like a particularly amazing choice for these two people. But part of why it, I mean, it might work for everyone is that it's about borders and border crossing and refugees and hospitality and welcoming the stranger. And it's also lesser known. So people don't come with the same amount of um, 
baggage perhaps with the book. Yeah. But it's also shared by both Catholics and Protestants and their both of their traditions. It's woman centric, which invites um, people in a different way, but also doesn't have a lot of divine intervention or doesn't have divine intervention or God really as, as uh, a character coming and changing the narrative. So it's secular in the way that you describe the word secular. So someone could be at the table with a Catholic and a Protestant um, man and a woman and an atheist and all be engaging with this text. Yeah. So this is my, this is my long way though of, of asking about the subtext to this choice, the subtext to this choice of the book of Ruth, I think, or what seems like the unspoken story is that there must be something counterproductive to simply coming to the table with the stories we always tell ourselves about ourselves. So uh, if we were to sit down and try to figure out um, British Irish relations post Brexit, and we just each person's going to be heard about yeah. what they know about each other's pain, there's something about going obliquely in a way that both people can yet still recognize that seems to be a move that you're asserting is a more productive way to go. Yeah. You know, when you think of rooms of dialogue, often the the imagination is that you've got a, a fairly empty room with chairs in a circle, in a circle, a group facilitator somewhere and everybody's talking or being invited to talk and they have some kind of way of making that work. And I have facilitated rooms like that from time to time, but it's such an unusual gathering, it, especially for cultures like many of the world cultures where hospitality is a value. The idea of sitting in a circle where there isn't a table between you is physically awkward um, as, as well as perhaps um, difficult to hide and any group facilitative encounter has to pay attention to the fact that people need to be able to disclose and then keep covered and then disclose and keep covered with their own consent to themselves. And I, I believe in having a way within which a room can communicate that psychology and that hospitality toward the need to cover and uncover, cover and uncover. So for many years when I brought people together to discuss their experiences of the troubles, to discuss their experience of sectarianism, to discuss the ways within which Britishness or Irishness had resulted in a bereavement in their family. Um, I brought people around tables and something like a dinner table where there was tea and biscuits or sandwiches, anything, a way within which you feel like your body's half hidden. You can lean on it. You can play with the cup if you need to, because sometimes you just need something to do with your hands. These are the ways within which kitchen table conversations happen. Mm. And as far as possible, I've always been interested in how it is that group dialogue can mirror something that feels replicable. I suppose a sitting room often doesn't have a big table in it, but a sitting room will have a coffee table or ways within which your posture is different, you know. So when it came to time to be begin thinking about what the hell are we going to do with whatever the hell Brexit's going to turn out to be, 
I mean, the last 10 years have been what's known as the decade of centenaries in Ireland, where we mark, you know, the signing of the Ulster Covenant, that some people signed a covenant in their own blood to say that they would never be part of a united Ireland, and some British identifying people. Then the party, then the the rev, the the uprising, and uh, then the partition of Ireland, and all of these other features. We we knew that these last ten years were going to be difficult, and in in the middle of that, the British government proposed Brexit. The British government that do not have a written constitution proposed a referendum, which is usually uh, technology for amending a written constitution. Mm. They proposed a tool that they don't know how to use for a constitution that they don't have. Yeah. And th they produced a pamphlet that didn't mention Ireland once. And loads of people in England didn't even think about what that meant. I met so many people in England that were like, oh, I just assumed that oh, Northern Ireland would just go back to Ireland. <laughs> you know? Wow. So many people hadn't thought about it like that. And maybe they don't need to. I mean, I, I think they should. I think there's a, a civic intellectual debt on behalf of colonizers to think about how their present political actions impact on their present or former colonies. But maybe they didn't need to, but the British government had a requirement to do something much better. And the entire Brexit project was an intellectual failure. I think what's curious is that Britain has always had a certain amount of Euroscepticism. And I actually wish that the British government had come up with something much more interesting to engage with that question of Euroscepticism. Because that Britain had something to say clearly, and that should have been heard, instead of which it was brought into a big and pre-failed game that has failed at its inception and continues to fail now. So in 2015, when Brexit was being imagined, it was perfectly clear that this was what was going to happen. Like anybody working in community work in the north of Ireland was like, my God, like this, this already is a failure, even before the, even before the, the referendum. Uh, and so I, I wanted to think about how can we create rooms of people after Brexit to talk about this, to talk to each other and not to be caught up in the binary systems that the British government then continued to bring about in terms of pro-EU against EU, this trade agreement or that trade agreement. Peace, peaceful relations on the island of Ireland are not only governed by whether there's a good trade agreement, whether across both sides of the British border in Ireland or whether between the island of Ireland and the island of Britain. Trade agreements are only part of it. It is a way within which there can be a, a civic structure to support trust. And Brexit was a failure of trust. Britain had entered into an internationally binding treaty under the Good Friday Agreement that they failed by going about Brexit in a way, that in the way that they did. And trust was broken, and some would say seriously broken, perhaps even irretrievably broken by the British government's decision to do this, which is really uh, a crisis happening within the Conservative Party in, in Westminster. So in the midst of all of this lack of trust, all of these assumptions that whatever the Good Friday Agreement was built on would continue to be buildable upon, even if you had awful Egypts in this government or awful Egypts in that government, you thought, well, no, at least we've got the bedrock of this. Brexit showed, my God, we don't. 
And so what we were keen to do through the work of Carmilla was to figure out how can we engage with religious groups, the Dublin government, and I'm not the biggest fan of the government that were doing this, but I thought they did brilliantly. They arranged civic for all across Ireland, bringing sporting groups, bringing civic groups together. Like it was magnificent. They'd rent a hotel, bring people together for a day. They'd have people speaking. They had all these really accessible grants to say it'll take you five minutes for your small business to apply for a grant that'll give you £1,500 just to shore yourselves up so that over the next period of uncertainty about Brexit, you'll at least be able to spend a bit of money in investing in an infrastructure, which will mean that your business won't go under. The, the ads on Irish radio were saying five minutes of easy application for a grant. My God, I've never heard grants being communicated so clearly. But the Dublin government were not engaging directly with religion. And to be simply crude about it, religion is the biggest club in the country. You know, if you look at monthly attendance figures, you know, there's more people are part of the club of religion in Ireland than any other club. So we wrote to them on behalf of Carmela and said, look, we have this story, which is not a British story or an Irish story. It is a story that suggests the imagination. It's about a widowed, displaced female border crosser who crosses into a community and it isn't binary. It opens up the possibility about what a new shape of belonging can be and how people are able to change their minds for the purpose of the shared good. And they said to us, ask for more money. We'll give it to you. So they doubled the amount that we were asking for wow. and said, can you meet with, I think they asked us to meet with 2,000 or 3,000 people over the course of the two years of funding. And we ended up meeting with 5,000. We had it translated into Welsh. We went with people all over Ireland, North and South, as well as England, Scotland and Wales. And so much of it was an opportunity to be brought into a room where people really disagreed with each other, mm. but were able to disagree with each other with, if you like, the hospitality of a story as the table between them, a text that you could look at. And when the tension, political tension in the room got too much, somebody might go, well, let's look back at chapter three, for instance. And it just allowed for that covering and uncovering, covering and uncovering, that is part of the ebb and flow of everyday conversation, rather than something that feels like forced group therapy, which unless people are specifically opting in for that, um, it's not going to work. I love the way you're describing covering and uncovering and earlier when you said um, that the table allows your body to be half hidden. That seems so, it seems so wise and not something I would immediately have, have thought of. Um, the, the ability to um, move within oneself, within the encounter. I saw, you know, I, I, when I was starting off in group work, I saw so many rooms that were set up where it was a big, vulnerable space that presumed complete vulnerability where your entire body would be on show and somebody might be telling a story or asking a question or sharing something of their experience and you could see the awkwardness in their body and you could think if there was the possibility of being able to be a little bit more homely in the way that we've set this room up well then um you, conversation might flow in a slightly different way and attention might be given towards where it wishes to be attend where, where it wishes to be given rather than um in wondering how exposed am i one time i'd set a room up like that for some young people who'd been involved in the care system and they were 
all adults now and we were having a conversation about how to tell stories about the care system and I set the room up to look as far as possible um, just safe in terms of the geography of the room and the, the landscape of the room and one of them came in and said god this looks like a home and I thought perfect that's yeah. exactly what you want you can move around you can you don't have to ask questions can I do this can I do that just find a way where the room itself communicates and ease and freedom as well as privacy and, and that I think creates an atmosphere where consent as well as self-respect can be in a, a mutually fruitful conversation. Well, when um, Darren Nagrifa was on the show to talk about Ghost in the Throat and to Star of the Dark, we talked about her her collaboration with the Choctaw poet Leon Howe yeah. to commemorate when the Choctaw, not long after their dislocation and dispossession on the Trail of Tears, raised and sent money to Ireland during the famine. And Darren felt the impulse to complicate the telling of her own story in her collaboration, to not just look at the Irish in Ireland as one indigenous people connecting to another in North America, but to also look at the ways the Irish diaspora has participated in white supremacy, among other things, slavery and, and the dispossession of native peoples. Um, and you share this unsurprisingly, I'm sure people already just having heard you in the beginning of, of this conversation, you share this dual impulse, this way of complicating one's own story of self by holding forth these two truths, not trying to erase one with the other. And in the spirit of that, I was hoping maybe we could hear your, your two poems that begin with, uh, the Fed Frederick Douglass epigraphs. For sure, I'd be delighted to. Um, so it's a hundred years since Ireland was partitioned, and uh, there's there's talk about what um, what artistic commemorations should be put up around Ireland in Dublin or Belfast, and some of the discussion is whether there should be artistic depictions, statues of um, Frederick Douglass put up, because when he visited Ireland as part of his tour of Britain and Ireland to to gain support um, in 1845, he said the following. He said, I can truly say I have spent some of the happiest moments of my life since landing in this country. I seem to have undergone a transformation. I live a new life, the entire absence of everything that looked like prejudice against me on account of the color of my skin contrasted so strongly with my long and bitter experience in the United States that I look with wonder and amazement on the transition. So he said that in 1845, which is the first year of the famine, the Ungart the Moor, we call it in Irish, the Great Famine, the Great Hunger. We never call it the Potato Famine because there's plenty of food to feed us. This was a famine that was a, um, a choice, a policy choice, like I suppose most famines. And a couple, my great-great-grandfather was five when Frederick Douglass said this, and when he was seven or so in 1847, he was from an Irish-speaking area near enough to Clonakilty, and the family, it was him and a brother and his two parents, decided that they would get some soup from the Protestant soup kitchen in Clonakilty, 
And that meant he had to convert to Protestantism in order to be able to get some soup. And they went to Clon to, to get the soup. He got separated from his parents and he never saw them again. We all assume they died, really. Um, and so this Frederick Douglass quote, this extraordinary quote from him, this phenomenally generous quote to a people under oppression in terms of colonization and under terrible laws. Ireland was basically the factory for Britain's food. It was overwhelming. Ireland as a much smaller landmass was providing something like 60% of the corn and 70% of the beef that was being consumed in Britain. Hungry people. And during the famine, when the potato crop failed, um, starving people were loading opulent ships filled with food that were going off to Britain. Often they were loading those ships and then dying of hunger themselves. So here's a, um, here's a poem called, it's called The Potato Famine, but potatoes crossed out. It's a villanelle. My father likes his spuds piled high upon his plate. My mother likes her peace and her diet magazines. My great-great-grandad was the only one who made it. At the heart of every famine is the scheming of a state to bring a people to their knees for the state's convenience. My father likes his spuds piled high upon his plate. On the phone, an English woman says the Irish are fixated with our stories of the past in a way that's quite obscene, but my great-great-grandad was the only one who made it. My auntie moved to England and learned how to translate between the way a people are and the way their history's been. My father likes his spuds piled high upon his plate. There are proteins in our grass from forgotten famine graves. Some families fed on rotten grass. And my mother tells me my granddad's granddad was the only one who made it. His family had all starved, so he missed his confirmation. Decades later, a priest arranged it, didn't make a scene. My father likes his spuds piled high upon his plate, and my great-great-granddad was the only one who made it. I love that poem. Oh, thanks. So, because of this well-known statement, which is actually much longer, it's only an excerpt of Frederick Douglass's statement that I read, that he gave in Dublin in 1845, and because that is celebrated, and in a certain sense it's seen as a civic reflection on the hospitality of the Irish people, even while circumstances were terrible, there's all of these thoughts of commemorating Black Lives Matter in Ireland by putting up a statue of Frederick Douglass, which is, I think, a certain attempt to try to say Actually, we've always thought that Black Lives Matter here, even in 1845, even at the beginning of a famine. And what I think that these hopes are, and I understand the desire to have these hopes. There's a hope in any country that's gone through famine, that because you've gone through oppression, you will be the friend of other places that have. But they all ignore what Frederick Douglass said eight years later in 1853. This is what he said, you know, a million people died and a well, at least a million people died and um, a million people left during the few years of the famine. And 1845, it's thought that the population was nine or maybe nine and a half million. 1880, the Irish population was four million. And we've never recovered the population that we had, you know, in 1845. 
a lot of those people went to Boston or Philadelphia or New York or Louisiana um, on these coffin ships, as they were called, people arriving filled with disease and death and terrible circumstances. So here's what Frederick Douglass said in 1853. The Irish who at home readily sympathize with the oppressed everywhere are instantly taught when they step upon our soil to hate and despise the Negro. They are taught to believe that he eats the bread that belongs to them. Sir, the Irish American will find out his mistake one day. He will find that in assuming our avocation, he has also assumed our degradation. Now, if there's a statue with those words written on it that's put up, I will be delighted because that is a call to civic attention that, that pierces through the imagination that just because you've suffered, you're the friends of the suffering. The study of Irishness over the last 200 years is ample evidence to recognise that in the United States, in Canada, Jamaica, Montserrat, New Zealand, Australia, the Irish, plenty of whom mightn't even have spoken English when they left, found it in themselves and the British founded them in, in themselves too, to put away with the kinds of divisions between Britishness and Irishness that were experienced back home in Ireland and to find a way to collaborate in horrific projects of annihilation of indigenous people, of continued enslavement and continued resistance to emancipation. Heroes that were, that stood up against the British, um, I think John Mitchell, a Protestant clergyman from Derry, who said, the Lord God Almighty sent the blight, but the English created the famine. That was a statement that he said that was absolutely, it, it went like a wildfire around the imaginations because it was so pertinent and clear. It's Twitter before Twitter. When he, I mean, he was sent to Tasmania, he escaped. He was, you know, sent as a prisoner to Van Diemen's land. He escaped. He made his way to the United States, established a newspaper of which he was one of the co-editors and in his editorials firmly opposed emancipation. And there are so many football grounds around Ireland dedicated to him because we remember what he said in terms of standing up against oppression here. But the, the history of the Irish is a, a terrible history of complicity that, that suffering didn't teach us enough. <laughs> and that you, you realize that suffering people for good reason are desperate for at least a certain level of tolerability and comfort. And the terrible thing is with that, that that comes along with passing on horrific annihilations and abominations to other populations. So here's a poem called Phytophthora infestans, which is the Latin name for the potato blight. This is a pantoum. We love to blame the British for our past. A past that's blighted by a story we won't own. God knows it wasn't that our suffering was mild at home, but when we travelled, we shacked up with empire and smited other places while crying about our home. Not with a rot of other people's making, but with a rot our own. And not because of how an empire shackled us, but because of something rotten in us. Certainly a rot of other people's making not our own, starved us from our villages and homes, but because of something rotten in us and not a blight that was exploited, we went and starved other peoples from their villages and homes. 
Our suffering was far from mild at home. Far from home, we uncovered something white inside us. We love to blame the Brits for the stories we won't own. I've been listening to Padrigo Tuma read some new and as of yet uncollected poems. If you're okay with it, at some point I, w- I would like to place myself in, in this dual fashion within the conversation and relationship to your work. But, And I also want to pursue many more questions about story in relationship to borders and conflict because much of how I think of story being important to address or adapt to climate change, we are about to also see mass migrations across borders because of climate. And I think this question of the stranger and kinship and hospitality seems paramount to me, regardless of where we live, um, um, that we're all going to be facing choices of how to receive or not receive the other. But I also don't want to give short shrift to poetry so given that you've just read two poems, I thought we'd take a, a moment to talk about poetry versus story. Hmm. Um, when Kava Akbar was on, we talked extensively about the relationship between poetry and prayer, something that you've also talked about. And I wanted to read something that you've said that I read to Kava and also something that you wrote uh, from the Daily Prayer Book. The first is, This is how strange prayer and poetry are. By naming what is not there, we can be wrapped in some kind of sacramental absence that does seem to have some sort of presence at the heart of it, that doesn't give final answers, that is not interested in certitudes, but is interested in some kind of connection point. And then in the daily prayer book, you write, I've heard it said that Prayer is not an art, it is a cry. I liked that thought for a while, especially when I thought that form was a form of constriction, that the breath of prayer needed to be free. But breath has form. In fact, breath is form, the fundamental rhythm by which we live and breathe and have our being. God's breath is over the chaotic waters we read. Our breath is in the chaotic body, and we hope might have a touch of the holy about it too. And then later you say in the same section, perhaps we are drawn to rhythm and thus form by extension because the first thing we hear is a heartbeat. And I guess I wonder if hearing your own words now sparks any thoughts in general, but also would be interested in hearing about poetry and encounter with the other and how for you, if it does, how it differs from you from story in that regard. I recognize in hearing those words that they're a few years old now. I suppose I wrote those in 2017, so four years ago. Um, I, I recognize that I'm, I'm trying to find words for nothingness. And I mean, Fasal Mohoyuddin in his poem Prayer speaks about God as a, being a perfect emptiness. And I found that so rich and so insightful. And you think of Emily Dickinson saying, I'm nobody. The implication of that is that it's self-derogatory. When actually, what if it's a revelation? 
what if the recognition that God is emptiness is uh, is of the same kind of quality that we recognize? You wouldn't have poetry on the page without the blank space on the page accompanying the poem. That it is the backdrop, the support, the the atmospheric support system within which thriving can happen. The idea that there is something and nothing and that those two things are opposed to each other and that ultimately what we want is more of the something and less of the nothing, I think is a limited imagination about what it means to be human. It's a limited imagination about what cellular reality is also. <laughs> I don't know enough about science to take that any further, but I know that within cells and within the atom, there's a lot of nothing and that's a lot of necessary nothing. So I suppose I think of God as the most intimate emptiness. And perhaps if I'm able to pray enough, uh, my favorite emptiness, an emptiness towards which I can turn, an emptiness that is not invested in my annihilation, but an emptiness that is not afraid of being empty and invites me into perhaps a, a kind of living with that wisdom and allowing that wisdom to go wherever it might in courageous acts of the day. So much of conflict is trying to win because of the fear of death, because of the fear of losing, which feels like a death. And to nurture and deepen uh, an engagement with the emptiness that God might be, might actually be a way to, to take away some of the fear we have of emptiness, of nothingness. I can hear that I was beginning to circle around that, <laughs> uh, around those. But I'm doing a PhD on poetry and prayer, as you mentioned, and I suppose some of my thoughts on that have have continued and I found new bits of language. I mean, I, I always loved Rilke's the second poem from the Book of Hours. I've been circling around God, a primordial tower. I've been circling for a thousand years. And I still do not know, am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? Wow. Beautiful. It's amazing. Falcon, storm, and great song. <laughs> three things that rely on air, which you can't see. Perhaps God is not the tower, but the air. And circling around God and Rilke's imagination seems to imply a further and further um, diameter that you can go out from that circle and that circle is possibly ever expanding and that that still is a circling around this emptiness and that i think whatever it's called might be something like poetry and might be something like prayer encounter two happens i mean glenn jordan of blessed memory with whom i wrote that book borders and belonging Glenn Jordan used to always say that when it came to questions to do with people who had disagreed violently, violently with each other, coming to some kind of life changing change in their approach, whether that's about sectarianism, whether that's about homophobia or misogyny or racism, he likened all of those experiences to an experience of conversion. He said, it's not only won by argument that somehow something happens in person's experience of themselves that pivots them, that there is a newness that happens in them where the, what they saw previously as threat, they now see as opportunity 
or they now see as safe or safe enough. And he always said, we're looking for conversion. And what are the circumstances that can support civic conversion? He didn't know, but he was so curious about it. But he held an airiness about him when he was engaging in difficult conversations with people with whom he disagreed because he was aware he couldn't control. He was interested in truth being the author of its own conversion to its own spaciousness. And I, I think that too is a certain kind of emptiness, a certain kind of airiness. Well, I don't know if this is connected, but it makes me think of a drash you did on uh, the story in Genesis, the creation, uh, and it might have been in In the Shelter, but I'm thinking of how most people view before the fall as an ideal scenario um, when humans lived in harmony with the non-human other um, and all sorts of other um, things that have befallen us because of the fall. Mm -hmm. um, but you point out that even Adam feels lonely and feels empty. And I, that was so, that sort of blew my mind to think of it that way, that maybe there's something in the fabric of existence that is that. Yeah. I mean, John Paul II is the one who said that. I stole it from him. I clearly didn't give him credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I didn't steal it from him. I, I kind of took a little bit of poetics from him. Um, he was not a great biblicist. He was a moral philosopher, really. He kind of decided his imagination about what was right and wrong and then used the Bible to argue towards it. He had two PhDs in philosophy, so like he had a lot of thought behind him, quite extraordinary in some ways. Um, but he spoke about Adam being made of the earth and strangely filled with the breath of the sky and that that was a strange and complicated experience to feel torn between two things. You are not the earth, Adam anymore and neither is Adam the God. Somehow there is an existential loneliness to the experience of being human and I, I think that's so interesting as a recognition to, to, to go into the poetics of this text and to recognise that any text that's fantasising about the past, whether that's the Garden of Eden or anything else, or any text that's fantasising about the teleological future, heaven or hell, all they're doing is using artistic techniques and conceits to speak about what somebody considers to be important now. Mm. And that's what's of particular interest to me in religious literature, is that it is filled with thousands of years of the repository of projected imagination about the past and about the future. And what each of these narrators are doing is narrating something that's true and politically expedient and infuriating or violent about the present. I don't need to believe in heaven, I don't really, or hell, but what I really do believe is that the function of heaven or hell is to allow us to find a way to speak about the here and now. And that's why we need apocalypse, that Greek word meaning uncovering or revealing or pulling back the curtain almost. That's why we need those things is because I think religious literature began to become aware that it was using heaven and hell as a as a denial, really, of being engaged in the present. And every now and then somebody would come along, some artist 
with an urgency about the present and they would begin speaking about the present in a way that was a tension and a shock to what was going on. You hear that in Koholeth, the book of Ecclesiastes. Clearly, whoever wrote the book of Ecclesiastes was infuriated by the book of Proverbs and said, look, the good will die hungry and the bad will die happy. Do good anyway. <laughs> it's a magnificent <laughs> intervention into some of the ways that the book of Proverbs was saying, oh, look, do good and do good will come back to you eventually. And the bad, you know what, even if just before they die, they'll die a bit miserable. And the book of Ecclesiastes is saying that is not true. And so you see this collection of arguments about the present and they're using the conceit of heaven and hell. But we do that all the time anyway. Yeah. I mean, when you said the thing, uh, the really beautiful saying from John Paul II, uh, that Adam was made of earth and filled with the sky, it makes me think of the Torah not having vowels and the idea that, I mean, I think of the letters maybe being like the earth because it's often described that each generation comes to the the consonants that are the Torah and yeah. they they breathe life into them with the meaning of that generation. So it's only through the voicing of those letters, the sky coming into the letters that makes the yeah. makes the Torah the Torah. And somehow the sky comes into those letters through the human voicing them. Yes. You know, my life, my my religious imagination changed when I came in contact with Jews. I was on a, a, a course on looking at history um, in London. And there was a whole variety of people from Israel, as well as folks from the Jewish community in London on that course. And we went out for a meal one night and I was really curious to talk about how the Jews at the table felt about public conversations where Christians of one shape or flavor or another used Hebrew Bible to make statements without knowing any Hebrew. So I was wanting to ask all of these questions about the Bible. And there was this guy called Dove who was sitting next to me. And he said to me, Podrick, when's the last time you got laid? Because <laughs> he was so bored with me talking about the Bible all the time. I told him. <laughs> then he said, oh, honey, he was filled with pity. And then he did seem to think, OK, we'll talk about the Bible because clearly, you, you know, you're deserving of pity. But around that table, there was a woman called Noah and she engaged with the opening letter of the old, the first word or the first sentence of the first book of the Hebrew Bible, she engaged with the fact that it's the first letter in a way where she said, this has been an argument for centuries as to why the first letter of the first word or the first sentence of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible is the wrong letter. And she said, look, rabbis think one thing or the other thing, but I think it looks like a home. So I like to think that the beginning of all things is a home, that the, that the letter B looks like a home in, in Hebrew alphabet. And I just found myself thinking, are you allowed to do that? Are you, can you engage with text with that level of presence, imagination and lack of fear and space for speculation mm. and not feel like you're engaging in this to keep somebody happy, a pope or a god? And that was a literary conversion for me that opened up the possibility of thinking, you can ask this about all texts. Yeah, no, I was going to bring this up later, but I'm going to, I'm going to 
put myself into this conversation in relationship to Christianity the way you were sort of curious about about um, doing so at that table. Um, and the way you and Darren both did with your poetry around being Irish. Um, because I wanted, myself as a Jewish reader of Borders and Belonging, it was an experience that really blew me away. Um, I knew you were explicitly dealing with Irish, the Irish-British question of belonging, but I very much felt like you and Glenn were very aware of, even though you had not spoken of it explicitly, the history of Christian persecution of Jews. And I have some questions I want to ask you about empire and power dynamics and, and ignorance on one side versus the other, which I think is a, uh, I have a theory about that that I want to ask you. But I do feel like it's really rare for me, at least moving in the world, to um, see Christian portrayals uh, of Jewish things in a way where um, I don't feel diminished or erased. And I, I think one of the times that I that felt really electric to me was when Phil Metris was on the show, who um, who shares so many interests as as a as a fellow Christian poet, um, as a as a well, I didn't I'm, I hope I didn't typecast you by calling saying you're Christian fine, poet, you know, but but as someone who's in, in very into conflict resolution and mediation, also um, he I felt like though he didn't say it explicitly was like that, but when I think of um, so to stay on the side of the ledger that is Jewish um, suffering, I don't think most people know, for instance, that when Germany said the words, the final solution, that they were speaking to a pan-European two-millennium attempt to eradicate Jews from the continent, that Germany saw itself as finally having a solution for, that he was not only speaking to the past expulsion of Jews from Spain and Portugal and the Spanish Inquisition, or the 300-year expulsion of Jews from England, or the expulsion from Hungary and Switzerland and Southern Italy and France's multiple attempts to expel their Jews, or the 500 Jewish communities that were completely eradicated when Jews were accused of causing the Black Death, or the pogroms in Poland and the Ukraine, which often were much worse during Easter season when Jews were terrorized and accused of stealing Christian babies for their blood. But, but the, the main way I feel it, feel the recognition from you, Glenn, and Phil of a history, is that perhaps in being the only people accused of killing another people's God, um, and then portrayed for millennia in art and literature as both subhuman and superhuman, as being powerful and debased at the same time, like Satan, and with Christianity also seeing itself as making Judaism obsolete and illegitimate, and as seeing itself as being more emotionally and spiritually evolved, a kinder and gentler God rather than a jealous and angry one, as if revelations didn't exist on the one hand, and if Psalms, Isaiah, Ecclesiastes, and Ruth, or even um, the phrase from Leviticus, treat your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, um, reading your book felt like not only that the Hebrew text was attended to on its own terms, 
that it wasn't being looked at as a as simply as a precursor of the Christian fulfillment of prophecy, but that the Jewish world was treated with dignity, which I can only imagine comes from, as you've mentioned, encounters with Jews and a knowledge not only of one's religious, one's own religion's aspirational view of itself, but of what its actual actions were in the world. But I take this farther. Um, um, you don't, and I don't, you don't describe yourself this way, but this is my impression. But I, I feel like the way you engage with Christianity has a Jewish sensibility. Um, and this is how I, how I see it. Um, you de-emphasize the afterlife as a motivation, as you've mentioned, either as an allure or as a, uh, as a punishment. It feels like you have more of a Jewish sense of repentance. Um, you say in your memoir, they that talk and do not do are not repentant, which is there's a whole way in which you, you, you ask for forgiveness. And if you've harmed somebody as a Jew, you can't ask forgiveness from God. You have to ask from the person harmed. And there's a whole methodology of how, whether that's legitimate or not. Um, and then also the foregrounding and imagining um, oneself into the human imperfections of Jesus which feels more in line with, I think, how religious Jews view the Messiah, which is uh, um, a human, not, not as a God, a uh, human yeah. king. Um, and lastly, in my super long treatise on, on my experience of reading this book, which I love, I love Borders and Belongings. I just think it's so amazing. Um, it's on the level of language. And um, there was this funny exchange on Twitter. Maybe you saw it. There was this pastor um, from the Grace Bible Theological Seminary, and he said, there is not a single edit you could make to Scripture to improve it. Anything you would do to amend so much as a biblical comma would drastically demote it. And then a rabbi responded with a picture of the Hebrew Bible, which, of course, not only has no biblical commas, but no, but no punctuation at all and no vowels. And similarly, much of the Greek not yeah. only has no punctuation, but there's often no space between the words because they're yeah. trying to save paper because paper was so precious. But the ways Jews engage with Hebrew, where there are four levels of hermeneutics and the literal is the lowest level, and, it, and you do this not just with biblical language, but with language, I think, um, but most notably with biblical language, um, that it's polyvocal, that it's contradictory, that one book is commenting in a contradictory fashion to another, um, that there's plurality. And um, I know I've, I've wandered off into a wilderness that isn't a question, but I wondered if, any of, if this sparks any thoughts for you. Um, I'm struck with the great irony that you started off by saying we weren't going to, you know, you were anxious not to typecast me and you haven't. Uh, but what you're doing, and it's so moving, is like the, the, the literature of religion is, I think, the deepest curiosity of my life. I think I'll be circling around that um, uh, forever. Uh, while I have breath in my body, I will be curious about the poetries people have used in scriptures of the world to speak about the thing that they think is most important. I, I just, I owe so much to Jewish friends and to writers like Aviva Zornberg, who, and um, Shimon Bar Efrat 
and um, Robert Alter, who have used overwhelming learning and etymological skill and deep reading of contemporary poetries to bring levels of text to a readership today that takes the mind and the intellect seriously and the imagination and the intellect seriously. So often, again, coming back to my anxiety about even being called a Christian, I'm utterly uninterested in whether I am or not. I'm interested in these literatures, whatever that makes me, that's what I am. And I, I think that it is the desire to recruit that that is actually warlike because so much is sacrificed in the name of recruitment when you think, well, it kind of doesn't matter how you get there, provided you recruit people to your way of thinking, whether that's the Methodist next door who you convert to Catholicism or the Jew next door or the Muslim or the atheist or the backslidden person, all of those sudden categories become avenues of overwhelming manipulation and violence. And all of those are a defeat of the human enterprise mm. uh, because we aren't just made to stop fighting with each other. I, I, I think, I hope that if we are made for anything, it's a hope for some kind of flourishing and flourishing happens in tension and in argument that doesn't have recourse to threat and in imagination and curiosity and the pleasure of uncovering multiple things being possible all at once. And I, I think it's completely true to say that I've learned that through Jewish writers on the Bible. That's where I've learned that possibility. I, I, and Ignatius of Loyola also. Yes. But I, 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 I remember the, the times when I began to go, can you ask that question? Can you think like that? Can you do that with that text? I've never formally studied poetry, but I feel like I have been studying poetry all the years that I've been studying theology because I'm uninterested in reading bad theology now. I'm only interested in reading people whose work makes me go, look at what's possible in being in relationship to text. And I continue to seek out Jewish writers who are writing about the Hebrew Bible, because why else would you listen to anybody else who might have a colonizing imagination about saying, here's that story, but actually here's how I'm going to extract that story to try to prove a subsequent story. Right. That is not paying significant enough intellectual attention, A, to the text, or B, to your own violence. Well, there's this one point in Borderism Belonging, you say, Hebrew Bible narratives, while being profoundly moral, do not create false equivalency between the abstract pure and the embodied complicated. God is the wrestle that is found in the wrestle, not the imagination of the wrestle. And I really like that. It's one of the my favorite ways that Jews have of describing themselves as God wrestlers, yeah. not only because Jacob wrestles an angel and is renamed as Israel, but because most of the prophets and kings and everyday people, they aren't simply obedient to God. They are arguing and debating. They are ignoring and refusing and sometimes yeah. being devotional and obeying. Yeah. Uh, and I just love the way that you and Jesus wrestle um, both the very moving ways you imagine into Jesus's humanity, but also the irreverent ways you do it. Um, the ways you imagine Jesus would likely be an exhausting friend or commenting how one of his teachings seems a bit dated today, 
or perhaps most hilariously, a topic you list on your website among many that you you speak on is is called Jesus would have been a shit mediator and other stories. And of course, this is all bla- blasphemy to some, but it feels like wrestling to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. does, does that seem right? He would have been a terrible mediator. He was such an ideologue. My God. <laughs> a Jewish friend of mine said to me that he recently read the Gospels and said, like, I hear that Jesus is Jewish, but these aren't Jewish texts because he's being portrayed as so perfect. If you take any attention to any um, primary character in the Hebrew Bible, there's no anxiety about trying to prove that they're perfect. In fact, the opposite. There's a phenomenal recognition about the complexity of the human experience. And that isn't to demean it. It's just to say, here's the truth. Recognize yourself in this and live in such a way too that you make space for the complexities of the human enterprise. And I found that uh, a brilliant critique. Um, well, maybe as an example of yeah. one of your your um, so-called blasphemous well, poems, let's let's yeah. have you read. Let's have you read a Jesus. <laughs> there you are. That's a, you construct an introduction to it, and I will be the blasphemer with great joy. Here's a poem called Jesus Fantasizes. One of the things I think is so curious and strange about the Christianities that have influenced the world is an obsession with sexual purity that links virginity with purity. (laughs) As a former virgin, I know I wasn't very pure when I was a virgin. And so the implication that there's much to be said about virginity apart from a simple fact um, bores me, really. So here is a poem called Jesus Fantasizes, and it's partly me fantasizing about how Jesus would speak about his own sexuality, how he would speak about his own desire. Jesus Fantasizes. It's the desexing that bothers me, as if I never had a boner or some lust, as if I had so much of God's business to consider that I never wanted kisses or a nail run down my back. I woke every morning the way men wake every morning. I sought some comfort in some touch and thought that much could be achieved if people made more love more often. I think I'd have made a pretty average father, by which I mean, okay, by which I mean, I wish. I would like to age and watch my children grow. I would like to hold on to my body. Been listening to Padre Gotuma. Well, let me... um close the loop around me in the dual fashion. So I talked about like, you know, what I recognize from the place of, of, um, Jewish suffering. But I also wanted to talk about what, um, reading your books brought up for me on the other side and also bring this back to story and maybe the ways in which story can prevent encounter and growth and self-reflection. Um, You do say in in the shelter, this is our fullest dignity to be alive and have a story to tell. This is the richness of becoming more and more fully ourselves. And you also say, testimony, if told unwisely, 
can be a colonization of a single experience into a universal requirement. And you've also said that telling the story of yourself or your people in the same way can over time become an idol, a form of idolatry. And I'm thinking about when I was a kid and every year at the Passover Seder, which commemorates Jewish freedom from slavery and the establishment of a Jewish home in Israel. Um, And there's this ritual where you remove 10 drops from your glass of wine before you drink, one for each of the 10 plagues inflicted on the Egyptians, that even as you celebrated, you diminished your joy because of the pain caused to those who caused you pain. And I really liked that, and I do still like that ritual, but it seemed really obvious to my child self without a political analysis that we should be reducing our joy because of the Palestinians dispossessed from their homes and lands. But bringing that up, which I did, um, was never a welcome thing at at the table. Um, My last guest, the Palestinian novelist, Adani Shibli, she talks about the smooth, articulate language of the victors versus the stuttering, stammering language of the vanquished. And it made me think about all the shorthand placeholder stories that are meant to prevent encounter and prevent investigation or maybe to preserve one's sense of goodness. And I can think of countless ones as a Jewish person um, related to Israel. Um, and I'm just going to name one uh, as an as an example of that. But told that the Arab nations told the Palestinians to leave their homes in 1948, that they would be able to return when when the Arab world won the war. But according to the IDF's own records, released in the 80s, showed that while this isn't technically untrue, that did happen. It only accounted for a tiny fraction of the people who were dispossessed, which people who were mostly dispossessed through forced expulsion through violence or its threat. But that doesn't change the shorthand story because the shorthand story is meant to prevent people from seeking this out, um, even though that happened, even though that knowledge has been fully available um, for a long time. Um, And some say, for instance, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. But they're not saying that in an encounter with asking what an Arab citizen of Israel thinks. Um, In fact, I think that statement is meant to prevent that encounter. Um, And I guess I just wanted to know if that rings true to you, this notion of um, the way we have these like ways to sort of plug our, like sort of a static view of self that sort of prevents, through story, the ability to be changed through encountering another person. Yeah. You know, story has become so commodified as a marketing tool in the last while that I think it, it, it picks up on a certain tendency where the concept of telling your story does overlap with the concept of fixed ideology, which overlaps with the concept of idol. Um Nike, for instance, or Swatch, or so many of these brands will say, tell your story, tell your Nike story, tell your Swatch story. I don't care. But they're they're tuning into something where somehow owning something gives you a participation in a story 
which links to a sense of belonging, which links to a certain club that you want to be part of. And that is often critically unexamined when it comes to questions to do with how brands establish themselves, how religions market themselves, how, how other belonging groups market themselves, you know, CrossFit, yoga, um, whatever diet you're on, all of these things build into this sense of, and you'll be part of a worldwide community or a local community, etc. And somehow that is seen to be fixed and contains with it threats if you break the brand. And Apple, for instance, what kind of a computer do you have? Remember there was, there was those ads online or on TV, you know, showing a kind of a trendy Apple user and a slightly less trendy PC user. They're all tying in, I think, to some dangerous primal urges that are present in some, maybe many, maybe all, where belonging and fixed belonging needs to be preserved and needs to be preserved by defending yourself against those who you think are attacking you. And that, I think, is a really poor way to imagine the way that human society can be built. It is patriarchal in the sense of that it is addicted to warfare. And there are so many powerful feminist critiques of the idea that that is um, endemic to the entire human community. They're saying it's endemic, perhaps, to structures that have been influenced by patriarchy, which is all of them, or most of them. And uh, feminist scholars are saying, here are these other ways of belonging that are powerful and important too, and that actually are counterpoints to the possibility of a certain imagination that our story is fixed and I will defend my story not only against those people who I think are outside the story, but also those people inside who seem to be wandering a little bit too close to the border of the story. And that is a worrisome package of belonging, you know. Well, I think you see it in, in groups of friends, you know, as children where there's five friends and they're all delighted and they're thrilled and then somebody moves into the street or somebody has a cousin that comes to visit and they're thinking, will we or won't we allow that person in because will they wreck what we have? You know, they might say, oh, it was better before, it was better afterwards. So much of this desire to preserve what's going on. Again, it's that fantasy of death and that fantasy of erosion and change as if that isn't the way anyway. We're all growing up, so things are going to change. Maybe six-year-olds can't get that, but 20-year-olds can, 50-year-olds should. Um, and so I, I suppose I see those dynamics being really powerful in groups of belonging, whether that's the stories that are put across about how to diminish another people's story by saying, well, let's take a headline and use that to subjugate them, even though we know it's not true, or even though we know it's only a part of the truth or a fraction of the truth. Story has been manipulated for um, subjugation for a very long time. Stories of, and the concept of belonging has been a concept of violence also for a very long time. And ideas that story and belonging are necessarily necessarily benevolent i don't think you're paying enough attention to history yeah i mean i was i'm also thinking of the ways in which story doesn't just diminish 
other people's narratives, but can diminish other narratives within your own people. Yeah. Like I'm thinking about how uncomplicated the relationship of the average person, Jewish person without a political analysis of to ancient Israel, let's say. And then reading your Borders and Belonging, I learned about the plurality of opinion after the Babylonian exile when the prophets are asking well, why were we punished by being taken away and enslaved? And how can we not have this happen again? And so we have on the on the one hand, we have the followers of Jeremiah who are saying we should never have centralized prayer in Jerusalem at one temple. We need to go back to a localized regional um, yeah. uh, prayer, which I, there's a, there is a resurgence of diasporism in Judaism in response to what's going on in Israel also. But then there's also Ezekiel who says the temple is, is need was defiled and needs to be cleansed. And there was Isaiah who's like it's social injustice and we need a no, new social vision. Yeah. And then there, there is what we have today, I think, which is Ezra Nehemiah, which is um, all foreigners need to be kicked out. Um, foreigners, quote unquote, foreigners, because yeah. I mean, obviously that's a problem, extremely problematic word. Um, but Ruth being within the same Bible being uh, a counter narrative to Nehemiah. So both of these texts exist in the same tradition and Ruth being from the most hated of peoples becoming the direct uh, matriarch to King David. Yeah. That's why I saw, that's why I find Hebrew Bible so extraordinary and imaginative that within a historical context where you know, the community had come back from Babylon, were in this bedraggled version of Jerusalem that was, you know, a fraction of its former self. And they had this uh, appointed civil servant, Nehemiah, who was the epitome of the worst thing you might imagine about a civil servant. And he was, he was drawing all these kinds of lines to say, if you came back with a foreign spouse and your children are half foreign, get rid of them, marry a, marry a pure blood. Um, And that somehow somebody during that period of time thought, you know what we need? We need a fictional story about a widowed, displaced foreigner from the place that we hate the most. And to my mind, the Hebrew Bible is demonstrating within the context of that a theology of fiction and a theology of art and a theology of counter-narrative, as you called it and a theology of self-critical engagement with the story we're telling about ourselves, wondering who is actually benefiting from this story and at what expense, and who is making money from it, and whose agenda is being furthered, and what's happening behind the scenes. And so, you know, deep anxieties as to whether the Book of Ruth is, is historical or not. I don't care. I kind of hope it's not, because it goes even deeper then to show how human beings have been imagining stories that are actually moral engagement points with the question of who we are and how we're making ourselves to be. And that fiction and film and books and stories and entertainment actually can be powerful engagers with truth. And that, to my mind, opens up the question as to what civic belonging means today. What films are we making as a society that are asking questions like that? And how can we elevate those to say this is of the quality of the kind of um, 
self-examination that is um, always going to be necessary in order to save us from ourselves. Well, keeping in our minds Ruth being a Moabite coming from the most hated people and what could happen by a, a welcoming through loving kindness this person who wants to be part of your community when in this case she ends up being again the um great grandmother or great great grandmother of of the of the people's greatest king ultimately um through the acceptance of the otherness i'm thinking of there was one podcast you were on you're talking about renee gerard's theories of the negative other and then you were talking about Alain Sixu's critique of it, that not all others are this sort of other, a negative other, that particularly for people who have sex, by taking others into their bodies or who give birth with their bodies to other bodies, that it's important to remember this other form, this non-negative other. And I, I think of it when you mention that the first thing we hear is a heartbeat because that heartbeat isn't our heartbeat. And contrary to the existentialist motto that we are born alone and die alone, we might die alone, but we're definitely never, we never are born alone. So mm. it's hard for me to, to, um, to fully adopt that belief. But um, somehow I wonder if prayer slash poetry could be considered a practice of being in the presence of and relationship to, yes, otherness as the great unknown, but also otherness within ourselves and everyone we encounter, and one that maybe we can't know fully but can still treat with care. Because in, in another podcast, in the Queerology podcast, you were asked how you identified and you talked about how you weren't comfortable with the word identity, that it didn't seem creative enough or generous enough to describe what being human is, and that you yourself were interested in being plural. So um, I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, being plural, and then also maybe as a follow-up to that, if we could hear your poems, mother tongue slash other tongue, and Jesus considers pronouns. One of the things I think that belonging to a narrative tradition, and I suppose most religions are a narrative tradition, one of the things that that does is to reassert a certain sense of community, a certain sense of practice, a certain sense of rites of passage, and a certain moral examination of self as you go along that way, at different levels as you grow up and grow older. And I think that when it works, a narrative tradition allows for growth, allows for changing relations to the ideology being proposed by that narrative, but holds it together in a certain form of practice and a certain form of moral examination as well as celebration through rites of passage. And all of these things are attuned to continual levels of change. Um, in my undergrad, there was a fellow who was studying in the same class, and I was amongst the youngest. I was in my late 20s when I started my undergrad. Most of the class were in their 50s, 60s or 70s, and it was a part-time theology degree. And there was this great guy who just said to me at one point, you take religion a bit seriously. 
um, you should probably make sure to take breaks from it from time to time, just so that you can look back in it and then come back in, like coming in and out in that way will probably be a really good thing for you. And nobody had ever said that to me. He was a lifelong Catholic. I mean, there was a whole bunch of converts to Catholicism in our class too. They were aghast that anybody would say that, mm. you know, there was this mix really of what I thought was a really inviting down to earth kind of folk Catholicism that he had, which is to say, you're still part of the community when you're stepping outside of it. And then this idea to say, unless you're signing up to everything the Vatican says, you're kind of in trouble, you know? Yeah. And his version was one that I found much more appealing because there was a way within which he had uh, a full imagination about what was necessary in order to form your mind. Mm. And that was critical. That was not um, addicted to loyalty at the expense of integrity. And I, I found it to be so safe. And it actually undid many pitfalls that people who are trying to be an adherent to any form of ideology could have in front of them. Pitfalls that are usually set up with. What will it be like when I'm perceived to be a traitor to this group, whatever that group is? And I've heard people say the same thing about yoga or about whatever they're into. You know, group belonging can be, it doesn't have to be, but it can be really violent because of the way it establishes its borders. Belen Siksu, I love her writing, even though I'm bewildered by it most of the time, because she takes the body phenomenally seriously. And she speaks about having a bisexuality and she isn't speaking about sexual orientation. She's really speaking about a, a, an imagination that understands itself as multiply sexual rather than just dominant. And she brings in the question of penetration into the understanding of the relationship to other and safe and consensual and pleasurable penetration and says, therefore, if this is something that's part of your erotic experience, why would you think that everybody hates the other? My God, I love the other. <laughs> that's what she's implying. Right. It's amazing. Uh, and then similarly, she speaks about the same thing for people who've given birth. And so I, I just found that to be such an interesting corporeal intellectual objection to certain ways within which um, the mind can distance itself from physical realities that we can embody. And therefore, I suppose I think of um, anything that I want to say that's fixed about myself, or maybe not anything that's, that's not true, but ideologies that I want to say I, I'm agnostic, I'm this, I'm that. Well, who's to say, you know, who's to say how that's going to change in time to come? I suppose I'm interested in thinking, well, I am whatever I am. And I'll try to find words for the different things that I'm thinking or being or the different groups I'm belonging to at different times in my life in the future. Um, I see it in Twitter profiles sometimes where there's this assertion to say this, 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 and this. and I, I totally get it. And most of the time when people are putting that up, I think, oh yeah, me too. But I, I wonder sometimes how we can have an imagination of speaking about the things that are so important to us in a way that are, in a way that is um, 
fruitful. And I, I sometimes haven't seen those things be fruitful. I see it in the Irish context, you know, somebody puts up a thing about their opinion about Britain and partition and stuff like that. And I have very strong opinions about Britain and partition in Ireland. But most of us in Ireland have relatives who went to Britain, parents who went to Britain. Most of us at some point in our family history have been supported by money that came back from Britain. You know, loads of Britain has the name Murphy or O'Sullivan. You know, sometimes I think these these moniker of markers that we put up don't allow for the fact that there is an extraordinary space that lurches in between that is plural. And that plural space can be really fruitful place for for exploring um, how we can find a way to survive each other as well as support each other beyond that in creative endeavors. I love that. Um, could we hear mother tongue and Jesus considers pronouns? Sure. So this poem is, is mother tongue and M is in parentheses or brackets. So I'm never entirely sure how to pronounce the title of this. Um, I, I, uh, my mother was very sick when I was younger. So from the age of two, I was and a part of what could loosely be called a kindergarten, although it was nothing as sophisticated as that, run by a woman from um, the Dingle Peninsula. And she only spoke Irish. My father said he heard her once try to say a few sentences in English and she had some vocabulary, but she had no concept of speaking. So of speaking that language. And so I, um, I was with her for three or four hours a day for two years. So. Certainly, I, I owe my love of Irish and a certain intuitive engagement with it. My grammar is terrible in Irish, so I would never claim to be fluent. But I, um, there is an intuitive engagement with it, which, which nurtures me enormously. And so that's part of what this poem explores. Mother tongue, other tongue. Growing up with two tongues in my mouth, I said yes in one, but not the other conjugating subjunctives before I knew what conjugating was, praying for forgiveness in a language with no verb for love, hinging sentences on a free tense because there's truth in subjectivity, learning lines about the hunger that drove us to the West, repeating the poetries of dead men whose hope died before they did, harvesting old sods, colluding with illusions of an unpartitioned people, minding and reminding lines of history, learning them by heart. I'm curious in your interest in that one, David. I, I Well, I mean, I'm interested partly in, um, when I was talking to Deren Negrifa and her talking about how vexed the Irish language is in Ireland today and and also hearing about from you that in other conversations about how it doesn't quite breathe the way that it could or should and that you know I know that colonization of Ireland way predates the the destruction of the language but you've you've characterized the the disappearance of the Irish languages one of the great or maybe the original or one of the originating wounds ultimately of this um british irish 
colonizing experience. Yeah. It's, I mean, I was in England. I'm in England. I used to be in England a lot. I haven't been for the last few years, but um, I was talking with some friends, people who I love, and they were talking about something to do with the monarchy. And I said, well, as a foreigner, I find it all confusing. And my English friends went, you're not a foreigner. Don't put yourself down. I was like, I totally am a foreigner <laughs> and I'm not putting myself down. Yeah. It's just a reality. Like, I am not from this country. And one of the ways within which I think our strangeness towards each other can be minimalized negatively is the fact that there's the assumption that because there's a shared language or at least shared dialects um, or mutually comprehensible dialects of English, uh, that, that that I think minimizes the fact that the Irish experience is profoundly different to the British experience and the English experience especially. So let me take this as an opportunity to, to present the theory that I have about ignor ignorance and power and see what you think. Um, because if it's true, I, I think it presents huge challenges for reconciliation and reparation. So, and, and when I'm thinking about the table that you create for people to dialogue at, I wonder if this is true, um, how, how to overcome it. Um, so my theory is that almost universally, the powerful group in the dynamic is uniquely ignorant of their own complicity in that power and the details of the harm it has caused. And I can't speak to how much the British know about Irish history or Britain's actions in Ireland, though you've referred, you've, you've sort of intimated a little bit to that here, but I can speak to the ways it feels like empire, in this case I'm thinking white American empire, feels remarkably incurious and self-referential. Um, and I imagine this is probably true of empire, like that it's some function of empire, like when Rome expands, the currency then you know has the, the head of the emperor on it. The language that is the currency of the land becomes the language of the, in, of the invader. Um, but I wondered if this rings true to you, and if it does, and you have Irish people coming to the table, who I'm imagining are acutely aware of the details and specifics of not only their own history, but the history of the British Empire at large. And they're talking to a British person who only has the vaguest notion of that same array of histories. And I'm thinking of the line from your memoir, we don't see things as they are, but as we are. How does one begin if, if there is that disparity of seeing? It is so complicated. What you're talking about, well, one of the things you're talking about, because you're bringing many interesting threads together, is is the past. And for whom is the past the past? Emily Dickinson has this poem, The past is such a curious creature. To look her in the face, a transport may reward you or disgrace. And then she says, unarmed, if any... I'm going to get it wrong. Something like unarmed, if any, find her. I charge them fly. Her rusty ammunition may yet reply. And in the Christiane Miller edition, she's got some of the marginalia. And alongside reply is the word destroy. And I find that such a powerful tension. Her rusty ammunition, ammunition speaking about the past, 
may yet destroy. She's speaking about there the way within which the past of a place has the power to speak to the present or perhaps even destroy something in the present. And I think it is the luxury of the powerful, A, to dwell on ignorance, and B, to imagine that the past is the past. In that um, famine poem, there's a line on the phone, an English woman says the Irish are fixated with our stories of the past in a way that's quite obscene. That had I, I had been in England and I was talking to somebody after a reading I'd done and um, I'd said something and she said, oh, you Irish, my God, you're so obsessed with the past. And only that week I'd gotten a document through the door that I will now always need to carry in my car if I'm going to drive across the border. And where I'm living, the border's a mile away um, because of Brexit. I was like, British partition of Ireland is not the past. What you consider the past is actually the present today. And that's a small example in comparison to ways within which Irish people would consider our civic public international sins to be things of the past. So I... And so therefore, within the context of this, I'm, I'm always interested in how we can pay attention to this beast of the past and how the beast of the past is is threatening and continues to exude threats and how the idea of saying, let's put the past behind us is a complete luxury and is a complete act of spin doctoring, too, because the idea that that's possible is only in the remit of those people who are not being daily affected by the past. Um, and I think one of the ways, certainly as an Irish person, I, I experience this is where I can be brought to real annoyance when I hear a British politician speak about the past of British presence in Ireland, as if that isn't continuing right now. There can be a certain self-righteousness in Irish people to think, well, therefore we are the wrong. And that can be true, but I also want us to continue to exercise the muscle of remembering we too have been part of asserting that the past is the past upon other populations of people. The traveling community in Ireland, black and brown Irish people, Irish women, LGBT Irish people, all those people who suffered internationally because of Irish complicity with empire. So I can't assert that this is a necessary action for people everywhere. I certainly think that for Irish shortcuts to remembering how our past is not the past, but is present pain, that must be accompanied by Irish shortcuts to holding the same lens of examination up to ourselves. Mm. And Emily Dickinson's poem uh, is constantly with me when I think about that. The past is such a curious creature. Well, let, let's stay here one more beat before we hear the hear the other poem. Uh, I want to I want to ask you a question that I'm endlessly curious about, and it's around framing and structural disparities when having dialogues, because there's a certain way dialogue and sitting at the table seems to suggest a framing that I wonder if sometimes is isn't it needs to be worked against. And again, I'm thinking of of Filmetris who is involved with conflict resolution like you. Um, and we talked about his, his book, Shrapnel Maps, which engages with Israel-Palestine, a question that isn't abstract for him, being a Lebanese Arab-American with a sister living in Palestine and married to a Palestinian. But nevertheless, he's entering a project where he portrays various Jewish positions juxtaposed alongside various Palestinian ones, and more mundanely on the level of social media, like he posted on Facebook 
on Israel Independence Day, a poem by Yehuda Amachai, and then the following day up on the Nakba for the Palestinian catastrophe, one by Darwish. Um, and there were Palestinians and others who were anguished by the equalizing framing that occurs mm -hmm. through juxtaposition. And I feel like it's something that Phil is really acutely aware of. And you see all these choices he's making in his collection to try to mitigate or complicate uh, this, this possible conundrum. But my question is about this notion of two people coming to the table, which might suggest parody or equivalency. Like we could say, we could go, oh, it's, you know, it's Isaac and Ishmael and they've been, they've been fighting forever. Um, so when I'm thinking, if we, if we think about people who are actively experiencing harm at the moment, I think of what Palestinian, Palestinian American poet Fadi Judah points out. He says, victims anywhere, anytime are capable of becoming killers and a killer should be called a killer even if leniency or compassion is extended, though not at the expense of allowing further killings, especially when incessantly directed at the same victim. But if we move back to Ireland and England, which has had its own long-standing history of, of victims and killers, but where now people are mostly living in its legacy rather than sort of the active eruption of it, how do we enter a discourse even with an oblique or quote-unquote neutral book like the Book of Ruth, without removing or erasing real harmful structural power dynamics that are disproportionately affecting people day to day? Yeah. It, this is a question that causes me constant anxiety within the context of establishing groups of dialogue because it is so rare that you get a group of people where there is parity between them when it comes to the question of threat. I, I do not believe that groups are incapable of acknowledging disparity of power. So therefore I name it. And sometimes that causes real complication, but that's okay to me to cause complication in a room because uh, to not do it is to be, is to be complicit. Um, like it, years ago, I was part of bringing together a bunch of LGBT activists with a bunch of people who had been very publicly vocal about um, resisting civil partnerships, about resisting the presence and safety of LGBT people in society. And I, it had taken months of persuasion to get these 45 people to commit to a two day residential up at Corrymeela. Months, my God, nothing has ever taken as much um, careful invitation as that. And um, within about two minutes of it starting, somebody who came from a more conservative point of view said, look, we just need to acknowledge that everybody here has been hurt. You know, you've insulted us and we've insulted you and we've all been hurt, you know. And one of the things that that was doing was creating a false equivalency between embarrassment that this person had. And I don't want to minimize the power of embarrassment. You know, he was in a certain sense confessing something, but doing something violent at the same time by saying, that's all that's happened to you too. When the LGBT people in the room were like, my God, have you been fired? Have you been hunted out of your home? Have you been threatened? You know, blah, and the list was very long. And we were right into it. And you see the way I often think 
that the powerful have the luxury of thinking that by them mentioning the one thing that has been difficult for them, they can establish false, they can establish an equivalency, and that equivalency is therefore going to be helpful. Because the imagination of that is, if you're proven to be the victim, well then you'll win, you'll win everything and then I'll lose. And that too is a really limited imagination, because victims too can be violent. And the idea that balance is the only way that neutrality can be established, because victims will trump everything, those are really limited imaginations about some of the dynamics that happen in power because victims groups can do terrible things to other people and need to be held accountable for that. And powerful groups can sometimes have subtleties. But if we're going to pretend that there's equivalency between both, well, then none of those subtleties are going to come out. And I, I, I keep on looking for metrics um, and group dynamic techniques and exercises to try to help groups to begin to name some of those things. Sometimes it's worked with groups that I've engaged with to say, well, what are the measures of safety and the measures of threat that you're carrying with you by coming into this room? Mm. List them out, you know. Yeah. And some people might go, I just had to rearrange my diary. Somebody else might have said, well, I had to tell somebody else that I was going somewhere else. I had to kind of lie about coming here. I'll have to come up with a good excuse about why I'm not, you know. And just to get people to talk about that in order perhaps to speak. Another time with another series of groups, I said, um, tell the story about the first time that you had a crush on someone. And somebody said, oh, you know, I was 16 and all the other, all my other friends had had all girlfriends. This is a man talking and he said, I was 16 and I thought, oh, I'm so late before I had a crush. And then I met a girl and we went out or we got married or we went out for a summer or whatever. And then other people in the room were saying, well, I knew that I had a crush when I was 13 and I was 45 before I told anybody that I was gay, you know, and just finding ways where you can begin to sense those things and locate those things in the context of story. And that is not to therefore say to all the straight people in the room in that context, therefore you have no capacity to speak and none of your opinions will be relevant. But it is to have a room where the disparities of human experience can be weighed appropriately. And I have seen that rooms are capable of doing that. In a family, people are aware, in a dysfunctional family, people will say, look, there's five of us and we all had it tough, but my God, that child, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, had it worse than the rest of us. Families are capable of recognizing that. And I would hope that people who come into a conflict resolution process are able to uh, to address the threat that they have imagined by thinking that if they recognize they haven't suffered more than others, that they will somehow lose the whole damn thing. They won't. Actually, they'll gain something by acknowledging the truth. Well, well let's hear Jesus considers pronouns. Jesus considers pronouns. The way he has never worked for you, she neither... The way they sounds plural and that's just how you like it. The way them makes you feel like you belong. The way there can be possessed and you've never felt like anything you owned would fit. The way you like conjugating yourselves in the first and the second and the many. The way we are legion makes sense in a way that nothing else makes sense. 
the way you breathe now that your plurals are made personal, the way you are the singular and the slew. We've been listening to Padre Gotuma read some new and as of yet uncollected poems. Um, so I have questions for you from Phil Metris, um, sort of multiple questions in one about silence and don't feel any obligation to be comprehensive uh, on, on answering because there, there are a lot sort of packed into this, but, um, okay. but I'm hoping it will, it will spark um, an interesting response. Um, he says, one of the features of Padraig's work is his recourse to the richness of Irish language. For instance, in his memoir, he notes that sorry in Irish translates literally as sadness on me. There is such poetry in the language. I'm curious about his relationship to the English language as a writer and as an Irish person, and whether he has written in Irish at all. Relatedly, Irish culture, particularly the culture of the North, but also evident in such classics as Daniel Corkery's Hidden Ireland, is not entirely visible or audible to English-speaking audiences. It is partly the silence of cultural imperialism, but also the silence of a culture unwilling to bow to that empire. So if there were a second question related to this one, it would be, what silences exist in his writing, either related to language or culture or personal life? What is his relationship to those silences? And, and there's a, a third silence I should add to my question, the silence of fear of self-protection. Thank you very much, Phil Metris. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first of all, I suppose I don't know how I'd relate to the English language without Irish. I, there, there has been no conscious memory for me where both of those languages weren't operating at the same time. And so... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have always been curious about what it's like to grow up in a country that where the majority of us speak a language that didn't come here, didn't come from here, and has only been here in terms of a huge majority of the population in the last 150 years or so. That's a recent turn in history, 170 years maybe. Um, and so to, to know the word for something here is, is in a certain sense to speak to speak the language and to hear an echo of centuries that people have called a bone, for instance, knov. I love that word. It's one of my favorite words in Irish. C-N-A with an accent, M-H, knov. And there's something even in the sonic of that that I find to be so interesting. And I find that it helps. Um, Paul and I were just down in Dingle last week and we took a boat out to the Blasket Islands. And you see ways within which a, a tiny population of people, maximum 200, lived on this island for a long time. And you, you can imagine or not imagine ways within which the famine and ways within which culture and ways within which religion had a specific microcosm, which was all so tied up in the language as well as the circumstances. So I suppose I, I don't know what it would be like for me to speak English without having a recourse to speaking a certain kind of hiberno English. I think that's what it's called in, in linguistics. 
I should say, just because it's important to say, because there is a fluent Irish language community and a first language Irish language community. I'm not part of either of those. I'm somebody who speaks Irish and has done all of my life, who has a continual need to improve. Um, I, I mean, the second part of that question in terms of questions to do with resistance, um, I, I think there is a certain electricity that you hear in the Irish language community of the North that is different to the Irish language community in the Republic, because in the Republic there's a bilingual constitution or bilingual, bilinguality is written into the constitution. Whereas in the North, it's only very recently in the last year that formal protections for the Irish language have been introduced. And even those formal protections are somewhat lacklustre. And so I do think that the Irish language community in the North, um, because it is under pressure and needs protection from the people, I actually find the Irish language community in the North really vibrant. Um, and so one time I was speaking at an event in West Belfast and somebody was speaking about what do you think the Irish language community needs? And I said, well, we need an Irish language act, like a government act. And people were like, yeah, and delighted. And I was like, but we need to be aware that here there's a there's 26 counties bordering us where they have a constitution that's bilingual. And you see that the language is not necessarily flourishing in the way you'd wish for it to be there. So the imagination that legal protection is the thing that will lead to flourishing is also an imagination that needs to be troubled. That didn't get a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, when I you do, I do write in Irish from time to time. Yes. You do. Um, but I, um, I send it to a friend to correct the grammar. Yeah. And credit the friend too, of course. When you, you said very early in our conversation that you've studied theology, but you have no formal education in poetry, but I was blown away in, in one conversation, you describing education in Ireland with regards to poetry. Uh, tell me if I get this wrong, but starting at the age of five, Irish students, students learn two poems a week, one in English, one in Irish. And because lots of Irish poets were also political figures, it was always a blending of, of poetry and history, essentially, and that you needed to know 70 to 80 poems in each language for one's major exams, reciting poems by heart, which is just, that's, to an American, uh, I'll just say, like, that's that's beyond the beyond for a poetry education. Like, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm very envious of, of, I mean, maybe I wouldn't have welcomed that yeah. in school. Like, so there's that paradox again. Oh, but, I hear but, we. <laughs> but from the, from the outside looking in, I'm like, wow, what a culture... With in regards to its um, elevation of poetry, totally. I, I mean, I am so grateful for that history of of poetry in all of our lives. I'm going to be seeing. I'm number three of six in the family. Number three of six kids, so I'll be seeing number four next week. And she's a biochemist, and um, her shelves are filled with some of her favorite poets from when she was doing those exams too. She loves Patrick Kavanagh. She said to me recently, I never got an Emily Dickinson. You need to buy me a collection. So I did. Um, and there's just, a, there is a, a way within which a, a conversation about poetry is, is not only of interest to people who are formally studying and formally interested in poet, poetry. There's a way within which there is a, an engagement. I, I mean, I, I'm speaking very much about the, the positive corner of the impact of that educational policy. Yes. Other people will be able to speak to ways within which it didn't work for them. But certainly I, I feel enormously privileged that that was the way it was. And 
you know, we'd have learned all kinds of poems off by heart and then at certain stages in the history curriculum would have heard, oh, and that's when that poet was assassinated um, as a result of having been involved in the Easter uprising in 1916, for instance. And so English literature and Irish literature and history have this enormous overlap. Well, maybe this will be a weird left turn for our, our as we sort of come near our close, but I want I wanted to talk I wanted to return to this question of of shorthand stories um, that preserve our goodness as humans as a species um, if we go back from the human question it happens a lot in America that when something bad happens in America people say that is an American that isn't us oh yeah but it sort of begs the question if it keeps happening over and over again if it maybe at some point it would be more productive to say that exactly is American and it reminds me of of a anecdote you share in, in the shelter where Gandhi's asked, well, what do you think of Christian society? And he says, well, it's a good idea. And it sort of points to like the difference between sort of the aspirational way a, a Christian, in this case, Christians would look at, at their own culture versus actually looking at the behavior of the culture. Um, but I, I wanted to take that into it's not something you specifically write about, or I haven't encountered it yet, but I, I'm sure you have interesting things to say about it. But placeholder stories with regards to seeing ourselves as a species, because I think of words like humane or to be inhuman or where is your humanity or you are an animal. Um, or in the shelter you say, which I like, to be human is to be in the image of goodness. And I like it as a pushback against original sin and that we're all inherently debased. But you also say that a practical theology is uh, that that which is called good must cause good. Um, but if we look at ourselves within a polyvocal interspecies habitat, we definitely haven't caused good. And it just makes me wonder about whether we need a new story about us in relationship to God, one that isn't the story that we were made in God's image because I'm thinking like here, here I'm thinking there's this test that humans use. And I think it's a completely flawed test, but for other reasons, but humans use tests on mammals of putting food at the end of a complex labyrinth to see how efficiently they're able to navigate the maze to get to the food as one way to measure intelligence and problem solving skills. But what we've discovered is slime molds which are unicellular, have no nervous system or brain. They regularly navigate these mazes in the most efficient way possible and often better than most of the so-called higher animals, uh, finding and following the shortest route. And they also have this extremely complex form of externalized memory. And it just makes me wonder if we go back to thinking of ourselves as plural and thinking about reconciliation and repair, but now with regards to the non-human, that perhaps to recognize the intelligence or empathy or capacity for creativity in things that we continue to presume have none, if we need to think of God not made in our image, but God made in the image of a slime mold. Um, I think of the poem you have in In the Shelter by David Wagner uh, called Lost, and it goes, stand still, the trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. 
where you are is called here and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. I just, I, I wanted to, I wanted to invite your thoughts on, on, um, you know, looking at biblical framing of the human within the natural with regards to story and encounter. Like if we really, as you said at the beginning, don't want to convert or persuade, but want to be changed through the encounter, what stories would allow us as humans to be changed by an encounter with a non-human? Yeah. I, I mean... It is so clear when you look at the, the poetry of the book of Genesis that the, the authors were what we would now call subsistence livers in the sense of the level of data they had about the nearest rivers, about the flora and the fauna, about the categorizations that they found to be necessary. The book of Genesis viewed through an anthropological lens really overlaps with many other original texts from other original societies where its primary anxiety was establishing a set of life-saving categorizations. Day, light, safe, deathly, edible, non-edible, um, permissible, non-permissible. And so much of the delineations that are happening within the, the two points of creation really that you see in the book of Genesis are about people discovering that language is beneficial in keeping you alive because language can help you with those most essential questions about categorization. I think verbs came much later and, you know, conjugation and all of those things. Language first was a, a tool of necessity for communicating quickly. I think that, that's some of the arguments that some people make. And within the context of that, what you realize is is A, that language is sophisticated, but B, that language is natural. And what that leads me to think of is what else is natural? How can you look, for instance, at evolution to see the selection, natural selection, as a way within which nature is veering towards how its population can thrive? And what does that look like? And what does an ecosystem of that mean? And what therefore is an ethic of natural ecosystems where things are in a certain amount of tension, there's plenty of carnivores alive, but in a, in a tension that means that if they kill too much, they'll die too. <laughs> and I suppose there's a brutality of that, that writers like Annie Dillard um, open up, you know, Annie Dillard is not starry eyed about nature. She writes about the most brutal kinds of nature, but does so in a way where I think it's a reflection on how is it that humans can reflect also on what an ethic and morality based on an ecosystem imagination. Uh, and so therefore, as a consequence of that, I, I think that it could be interesting to move away from imaginations of theological propositions of God as person, rather perhaps God as ground, God as ecosystem, God as a possibility of flourishing. Those kinds of imaginations could be, I mean, they're only metaphors, but they perhaps could be more fruitful than the idea of projecting a, a being in the sky. Well, um, 
it also connected me back to Irish and British relations. And I just want to share what I discovered going down this rabbit hole. And, and I'm sure you have more to share around it before we hear a couple of final poems. But somewhat randomly when preparing, I stumbled across the fact that Ireland has the least forest of anywhere in Europe. And following that fact further, I learned that Ireland was deforested partly to build British ships, which of course led to further colonization, but also that at one point Ireland had 80% forest cover, that er early Irish alphabets used tree names for their letters, Yes, that the majority of Irish place names were once Gaelic tree names, and when Queen Elizabeth ordered the destruction of Irish woods partially to deprive Irish fighters of shelter, and by the 17th century, only 2% of the land was forested. And today, most of that tiny amount of forest, which is less than 2%, I think, is mostly monoculture plantations. In addition, the, the British were keen on wolf extermination in the 16th and 17th century, and Irish warriors were referred to by the British as human wolves, the last wolf being killed in 1786, along with the disappearance of much of the wild forest. So there was, in the British imagination, a twinning of the eradication of Irish culture and the eradication of the tree and the wolf. Um, I, I, I don't know if you have any... Um, I don't know if you know of, of any modern-day engagements with a rewilding or reforesting of the island. Uh, and if you do, I'd love to hear it. And then I was thinking maybe we could hear um, Let the Water Swarm with a Swarm of Living Beings and then The Lifeline. To bring religion back in, when you, when you look at that instruction given to the earth man and earth woman in Genesis fill the earth and subdue it. There, there's a lot of writing written about that verb, the imperative subdue. What does that mean? Does it mean some people translate it as dominate? Some, some people take a more um, eco-theological approach and try to say that the word is perhaps a lot more like flourish alongside, you know. Uh, whatever the word originally means, you have seen ways within which to subdue the earth is a conquering technique, both of, you know, the environment and the ecosystem, but also of the cultures that have um, flourished within and as part of that. And that if you can somehow render the land unrecognisable, as well as make the language unusable in terms of negotiating for your own safety, you strike a blow to the soul of a place and the soul of a people in as much too as you strike a blow to the practicalities of survival, both for plants and for humans and for animals well, and for all animals in that place. And that is an old technology and old and dangerous technology. The terrible thing is that it is impossible to try to rewild to the plate to the way that it would be. And I mean, Hannah Arendt, when speaking about uh, horror said that the simple truth is that you cannot undo what has been done. This is not possible. She suggests that the way forward is promise and that promise needs forgiveness because promise will never quite live up to itself. But with enough forgiveness, promise will live up to itself enough. And I, I think that that is a, 
an optimistic approach to take to the human encounter, human endeavor. Um, I, I hope we can make it true because it's certainly more demanding than anything else and it's certainly rewarding and it's certainly worthwhile trying. Um, so there are some initiatives both to replant forests and not only replant forests with certain kinds of pine trees that fall over quickly in Ireland, but to replant forests in Ireland in a way that are um, that are going to flourish and take a lot longer to, to grow, but also to re-support bog land, which is such an important part of, of Irish landscape. And within that too, you see some really important, I think, um, revivals in the question of Irish language. My parents were involved in our local village, Cargilline, in supporting the establishment of a class or two of full immersion Irish language school when uh, my my younger siblings were coming into primary school age. And now um, there's a, a thriving Irish language primary school in our village, as well as now a, a, a secondary school that's going to be full immersion Irish language being built. And I'd say you'd be hard pressed in any town around Ireland not to find a thriving Irish language, full, full immersion Irish language education. And, and that is so important because it, it moves away from the idea of what kind of a job could you get if you spoke Irish more fluently, understanding that actually being immersed in a culture that speaks the language that's been spoken here for a long time and that recognizes the ways within which ways of referring and ways of thinking have been supported within that language, that that somehow is simply good for society. And, you know, people will go on to become nurses or bus drivers or doctors or whatever, teachers, who cares what. Um, but the fact that they have that level of Irish is going to be good for the soul of a community. And so linguistically, as well as then um, topographically, you do see initiatives like that. Ireland is, is terrible in our reputation regarding carbon, not reputation, in our consumption of carbon. Um, and so there, there is a lot more work to be done here. Well, let's hear let the water swarm with a swarm of living beings and and the lifeline as, as a, a way to go out today. Um, I wrote this after having spent two years reading through all the poems of Emily Dickinson. Um, I, I suppose I, I had gotten to the end of those 1775 poems and thought, right, what can I say about Emily Dickinson's work now? Um, and the answer is, is that I'm, I'm lost, I'm drowning and that there's occasional moments of thinking, oh, look at that. And then it's gone. The idea that to have immersed myself in her work and not drowned was in any way uh, an engagement where you could say something full, even if you did that 10 times. I, I think it's the wildness of what poetry was doing through her and in her that is so fascinating. And, and it's part part of for me an ethic of not thinking that I own a text and recognizing that a text can mean many different things at many different stages of a life. Let the waters swarm with a swarm of living beings. I've been swimming around here for a while now and while I've never touched the ocean floor I've tried. You notice things out here the way the wind makes waves chop at odd angles the way the water feels warmer at the top, the way the moon makes music when you're half dead with cold, 
the ways of frozen bones, the way the morning never feels the same. Once a seal bumped me, came right up to me like a sea puppy, and I swear it smiled. I was floating happy after that. I said the ocean was my home. Then the storm came, then the waves, then the lightning spiked the surface. Thunder clapped, hungry beasts swam round me. I saw seagulls eyeing me for scraps. So good. Thank you. <laughs> I should like that one. And the lifeline. I'm curious why why this one, the lifeline, dude. <laughs> I don't know that I have a I don't know that I have a logical answer. It just seemed like mm. a it seemed like a um it had an open way of ending. Yeah. in some way. Like that it opened it end mm. it would be a way to end our conversation with an opening mm. somehow. I had a few friends die last year, not just Glenn, and the Glenn was the most terrible. I had another friend who I loved, Graham, died last or the beginning of the last couple of days of 2019 also. And I wrote this for a friend, Dave, because he had circumstances had landed him in a time of real pressure. And I found myself the way you do thinking, how can I help a friend? Um, and you're, you're never sure apart from to speak of love and, you know, to say, I'll do what I can. So this was uh, a kind of a, an offering of that. The lifeline. Here is what I know. When death's bell tolls again, I need to go and make something, anything, a poem, a pie, a terrible scarf with my terrible knitting. I need to write a letter, remind myself of any little lifelines around me. When death sounds, I usually forget much of what I learned before. I go below. I count the echoes of other people's happiness. I carve that hole in my own chest again, pull out all my organs, wonder if they'll ever work again, stuff them back again, begin again. Thank you, Padraig. My pleasure. I, I um, so I've been anticipating our our encounter <laughs> together today for so long, and it it far exceeded my imagination, which was quite great. Well, David, it's been such a joy to have been in communication with you and to um, have prepared a bit and to think of this conversation. I always appreciate the level of time you take to read widely and listen widely, and then craft those questions. They're uh, they're an art in <laughs> in listening. You know your 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 questions in themselves demonstrate a profound form of listening through your reading of people. It's always a joy. It's a two hour drive for me from where I live to Belfast, so it's kind of perfect for one of your or most <laughs> of one of your conversations. <laughs> Thank you so much. We've been talking today to Padre Gotuma, the author of In the Shelter and Borders and Belonging. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Thank you. 
Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Padre Gotuma's work can be found at PadreGotuma.com and at OnBeing.org, where you'll find his show, Poetry Unbound, under the category Radio and Podcasts. Padraig adds some new poems, written as part of a collaborative project with some Scottish writers, in which he reads in both English and Irish, to our bonus audio archive. This joins bonus audio from Jory Graham, Alice Oswald, Darren Nagrifa, Laylee Longsoldier, Natalie Diaz, Richard Powers, Kava Akbar, Nikki Finney, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter, everything from Prince by Ricky Ducournay, Broadsides by Forrest Gander, rare Ursula K. Le Guin chapbooks, and much more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Bala in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog is Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.